Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Today's reading is an account of Operation Bunghole by Captain Cornelius Turner. Bunghole, the glider operation into Yugoslavia, was a truly allied undertaking. The towing aircraft were C-47s of 64th Troop Carrier Group, USAAF, the glider pilots British flying American Waco gliders. It was mounted at very short notice at the request of 133 Force, War Office Intelligence, and the human cargo consisted of a high-ranking Russian general and staff officers under command of General Korneyev. The first intimation to the independent glider squadron stationed at Comiso Airfield in Sicily that anything was afoot came in the form of instructions to fetch immediately from one of the airstrips near Kerouan in Tunisia three horse gliders that were said to be lying there. We flew over with the American troop carrier squadron to which we were attached and landed at dusk on the desolate abandoned strip. There the gliders were, looking utterly lonely and dejected, the last remnants, but for the wrecks and the rusty tin cans of the masses of men and machines that had packed these airstrips, roads and olive groves, when this area was the first airborne div HQ and the base for the Sicily landings. These horses had been at the mercy of wind, rain and the Arabs for six months, but there was no question of a proper inspection, nor indeed anyone who was qualified to carry one out. In the morning the pilots got in, tentatively checked the creaking controls, patted the woodwork trustingly and flew them 250 miles across the Mediterranean to Sicily. Their immediate orders were to carry straight on to Bari in Italy, with each glider loaded with a jeep and anything else that would make up a £7,000 load. We tested the loading, for we never had any loading charts, by arranging the load so that a body swinging from the tail could just raise the front wheels clear of the ground. Our well-attested experience was that this simple method is always satisfactory. The flight to Bari, with the tow ships barely clearing the high hills through heavy snow and a northeast gale, was an unpleasant experience for all concerned. The towing pilots on arrival immediately insisted that a C-47 horse combination over the Dinaric Alps of Yugoslavia was out of the question, and this was indeed self-evident. The horse plan was shelved, but though cheated on this occasion of their rightful destiny, these gliders died honourably in the end, for their remains now lie in a vineyard 20 miles northwest of Cannes. The following day, therefore, three Waco gliders, on which all our overseas glider training up to then had been carried out, were flown up by the squadron. Loading was carried out up to £4,500 apiece, and test flights made. The Russian commanding general insisted that all his staff should take part in these test flights in their appointed position. They went off without incident, if one accepts the sporting decision of Staff Sergeant McCulloch to execute a 360-degree turn over the town from about 300 feet on his landing approach. The aim of the flight was to land the Russian officers inside occupied Yugoslavia in a valley called Menedapolu, the Honeyfield, two miles north of the small town of Bozan Petrovac, about midway between Zagreb and Sarajevo in the eastern foothills of the Dinaric Alps, which rise at this point to 8,000 feet. The LZ was about 100 miles inland from the Dalmatian coast and 250 miles north from Bari. 
Our diversion raid was to be carried out by the 15th US Air Force with 50 fortresses on Zagreb to the north. 36 American and British fighters, Mustangs, Thunderbolts and Spitfires, truly a regal entourage with the escort detailed for the three gliders. The time of takeoff was 1100 hours. It was to be the first daylight glider operation. After two days of wintry weather, the skies cleared and the takeoff went off as planned. The gliders were piloted by myself and Staff Sergeant Newman, Staff Sergeant McCulloch and Staff Sergeant Hill and Staff Sergeant Morrison and Staff Sergeant McMillan. Incidentally, the C-47s of the USAAF, under command of Lieutenant Colonel Duden, were navigated respectively by an Australian, a South African and a New Zealander of the Royal Dominion's Air Forces. The escort was met at the rendezvous, 50 miles to the northwards, off the coast opposite the 8th Army forward positions, and the train headed northeast across the Adriatic at 8,000 feet in an absolutely cloudless sky and unlimited visibility. It was bitterly cold, and though the far-flung escort fighters were occasionally glimpsed wheeling and banking high overhead and far below, most of the time the gliders and tow ships seemed quite alone and defenceless in the midday sun. When landfall was made dead on track over the island of Zirji, the Balkan coast was seen to be blanketed with snow. The sharp outline of the towering range ahead was discerned when we were still over 50 miles away, and below there was not the slightest sign of civilization in the tortuous foothills, ribbed and ridged with ravines and patched with forest under the deep white carpet. The air was by now very turbulent, and this steadily increased during the next half hour, until at length the flight rocked and swayed thankfully over the last saddle with 500 or so feet to spare and peaks towering on either hand. As the hinterland opened up before us, we knew we were nearing our destination, and in a few minutes, after getting a fix on a large river, the tow ships turned about, and estimating my position about four or five miles from the LZ, I let go the rope of my lead glider and headed for the landing, being anxious not to bypass it a second time. As the gliders circled to land, thin wisps of smoke from straw fires were seen below, the first welcome indication that a correct pinpoint had been made. Within seconds and within a few yards of each other, the gliders touched down, or rather flopped, with a sickening jolt into the snow, reared vertically onto their noses and slowly settled back. The landing run was about 20 feet, and the ground snow about 3 feet deep. We were about 4,000 feet above sea level. We were the first Allied aircraft to land inside the country since the occupation. After being forcibly embraced by incredibly filthy and bearded natives, we were all hurried to a hut in the forest, which verged on the valley in which we found ourselves. The Russians were very cheerful, laughing and shaking our hands, the generals of Uncular, and even the colonel, who had sat immediately behind me throughout the flight, nursing a tommy gun, grinned broadly for the first time in our acquaintance. After a short meal and suitable speeches in various languages, all unintelligible to us, and my own no less mysterious reply, we set out by sleigh for Petrovac, the only delay being the insistence of the Russian general that two large cases out of the baggage should accompany us instead of being brought along behind by the drugs, Serbo Krauat, for comrades. We assumed that these were too important to be let out of his sight, as he had sat on them all the way over. Arrived at Petrovac, a village of about 4,000 inhabitants, we were escorted to a large bare upstairs room, already filled to overflowing by picturesque brigands, whose presence intrigued the nasal senses no less than the eyes. There we all sat down to a veritable banquet, and it was then that the studied forethought of the general bore fruit, for his two fine cases turned out to be full of vodka and caviar. 
It may here be mentioned that under their greatcoats, the Russian officers turned out to be wearing their smartest uniforms with full decorations. And this was an adroit psychological move, for the drugs were obviously far more impressed by these than by the somewhat individualistic sartorial affectations currently fashionable among British forces in this theatre. For three weary hours we ate course after course and drank tot after tot. But it was hail and farewell to banquets in Yugoslavia, for during our four weeks' incarceration inside that desperately poverty-stricken country, we never saw any tea, coffee, cocoa, salt, milk, only for children, sugar or any sweet things, yeast, butter or cheese, or other things which make food pleasant to eat. Our diet consisted exclusively of meat of every imaginable variety, except it seemed beef, mutton or pork, and potatoes, water, and unleavened rye and maize bread. There were some half-dozen British and American intelligence officers under command of Brigadier Fitzroy MacLean, already in the town when we arrived, together with some signals NCOs who operated the whimsical wireless set that should have kept us in touch with Cairo. Our valley, a hundred miles from the sea, was temporarily isolated by elements of the German army. Everybody knew that when the snow and the bitter cold were gone, rifle fire was the town's only defence. And in fact, within a day or two of the snow's departure, the Germans landed, a few weeks after we were back in Italy, in the gliders we already knew were assembled at Zagreb for that purpose. Marshal Tito's mountain stronghold was at Dravar, some ten miles away. It fell in a few minutes when the Germans came, and Tito made a hair's breadth escape into Italy. Each night, we would be out in the valley, ready to kindle straw fires arranged to form a code on the ground for the guidance of aircraft detailed to drop blankets, boots, rifles and ammunition, and sometimes men from bases in Italy. These were comfortless vigils, with no means of warmth but the straw and a hole in the snow with a temperature of 20 degrees or more of frost. Only two or three drops were made successfully during our stay, though we often heard aircraft. Naturally, the enemy also lighted fires, and a code of that nature is most difficult to interpret from an aircraft whose pilot is certain to hit a mountainside if he comes lower than three or four thousand feet above our heads. Once or twice, officers dropped out of the dark sky, stayed for a night, and then were off about their fascinating business elsewhere in the country, or to Austria, Bulgaria, Hungary, Germany, or heaven knows where. A pony was ready for them in the morning, and with their guides they disappeared into the forest. The drugs were passionately devoted to their leader, but were not impressive as soldiers. We were told that there was a high moral code in the ranks where men outnumbered girls by perhaps four to one. With commendable efficiency, they brought in accurate reports of all movements of the occupation forces and expeditiously wiped out any small patrol rash enough to enter their forests and mountain fastnesses. They thought the world of themselves, for they reminded us London Radio told them nightly that they were well-nigh perfect. The fact is that after seeing the Yugoslav and Greek partisans, one must form the conclusion that under suitable conditions, guerrilla warfare is the easiest of all forms of war and tends to attract the most shiftless no less than the most idealistic of recruits. It requires a very tough constitution and a marked ability to play hide-and-seek, touch-and-run or what have you, and in a terrain of roadless mountain and forest nothing really could be easier. Food, when required, was to be obtained on demand from any half-starved, terrified woman called to our hut's doorway in the dark of the night at the rifle-butt knock of the drug. In Greece, we were later to know fine people who had carried out their day-to-day -day work throughout the occupation, some of them the salt of the earth, but their guerrillas were generally the scum. The women were the heroes, for they could not run far even if they had wished. The good ladies who lodged us 
knew they could be called to account when we had gone and the others arrived, but they gave us every possible comfort and service in their poor but spotlessly clean log houses. The ground floors were often devoted to domestic animals, their living quarters being on the first floor under the high roofs with broad eaves after the Swiss or Austrian fashion. There were no shops, for there was nothing whatever to sell. Most of the houses were detached with a few orchard trees about them. We never saw the ground underneath the snow, but most of the streets seemed to consist of beaten dirt and rubble roads. Surprisingly, a pair of minaret-like towers reminded us that many of the people were Muslims, and that for centuries past this had been Turkish soil. There was no sign of any calling but agriculture, and we saw no men at work except feeding hay to the animals and cutting logs for fuel. The countryside in general appeared much like a picture postcard of the Tyrol, or perhaps the Rocky Mountains, a white blanket of snow, the coniferous forests, and the naked white peaks above, sharp in the clear air. Patrolling JU-88s sprayed the town with a burst or two for luck as they passed over daily. About one-third of the houses had been gutted by fire, either by the Germans or the Chetniks of Mihlajevic or the Ustachi of Pavlic. The two latter, the rival civil factions, were far more feared than the Germans. For civil war is the least civilised of conflicts. No quarter was expected or given between these parties, it being tacitly understood that if there are any accepted rules in war, these do not apply to civil warfare. But war apart, the people were of a very good-natured disposition. Lovers of music, they would take up quite spontaneously the song of some packhorse driver entering the street, and soon a hundred voices, young and old, would be joined in harmony, the women singing at their work and the children at their play. One evening a dance was held, and we all went and enjoyed ourselves immensely, for a country dance in Yugoslavia, Greece, Ireland or Kentucky is much the same and easy to get the hang of. Yes, war apart, they were a happy people, but should one wander towards the exits of the town, a cross-bandoliered, bomb-belted pirate or Amazon barring the way reminded us that there was little room for happiness in their lives now. After three weeks there were signs of the coming of the spring thaw and at last the snow grew thin enough to consider the possibility of a landing on our LZ for it was judged impossible yet to get through to the coast and away by sea. No Allied plane had previously landed and taken off but intelligence officers were due to report at their headquarters at Bari. The details of Allied policy towards Tito had recently been fixed at Yatche and new plans for opening up the country, new support for Tito, were afoot. So one night... A month after we had arrived, two Dakotas groped their way into our forbidden valley, circled and winked in recognition of our fires, and finally cut their throttles and bumped to a standstill, to the accompaniment of gasps of amazement from the inhabitants and of relief from ourselves. The RAF pilots jumped cheerfully out, but after inspecting the snow, still a good nine inches deep on the field, they grimly set about cutting down weight. They threw the doors away, and the seats, the parachutes and the dinghies, an all-personal kit. No time was lost, and the engines had been ticking over, no more than ten minutes, when we scrambled aboard and sat on the floor, along with some seriously wounded drugs and a couple of fortunate German prisoners. As the engines opened up, and the Dakota's leaps grew longer, and the wheels came clear, one waited tersely, recalling the little hill at the end of the takeoff track. But we saw it flash below through the dark void, where the doors had been. And that was the last we saw of Yugoslavia.